Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. Eighteen years ago, I read a book that completely changed my life and faith. How I saw the world, what the whole Bible was, like all of that. Like much of what followed in the last nearly 20 years was launched with the reading of a book by Walter Brueggemann called Prophetic Imagination. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. If you're not going to read it, I'm going to share a little bit about it this morning and some insights from Mr. Brueggemann this morning because, uh, because truly taking the idea of what is the Bible supposed to be, what is faith supposed to look like, where are we supposed to be going and what are we supposed to be doing, how do we understand the world around us, all of that was flipped in his reading and his understanding. Uh, for, for those of you that don't know, he's a, a biblical scholar, a Hebrew scholar that has just uh, incredibly insightful work specializes or or has expertise in theology of the Hebrew texts, which is kind of a unique subset of of biblical scholarship. Anyway, I want to share a little bit a little bit about his work today because we've been talking about exile and and the question we started with is are we living in exile? We feel like sometimes we can't say Merry Christmas anymore and and that the mainstream media is out to get us and all of this stuff. And, uh, and the reality is we're, I think, and I'm, so today I'm giving sort of an answer or a solution to our question. And the reality is I think we're in a different period still that requires us to think not so much about exile, which we'll talk about, but more about what it means to to follow in the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew prophets, but then also the tradition of Jesus and the early church that, that also lived in a very prophetic way. So, let's start with exile, then we'll talk about what this means and why, and then we'll come back to, uh, we'll come back to exile, not really at the end. So, so the world of exile is, is this place where you are not in charge. Your people are not in charge. The world that you once lived in, that you once knew, is no longer there. So for the Hebrew people, Israel and Judah, they had a land, they had a king, they had a governance, they had political structures, they had religious structures, they had everything, they got to tell the story how they wanted to tell it. We're going to come back to that in a minute, 
and the problems associated with that, but they got to tell the story how they wanted to tell it, tell the people how they should live and why they should live according to God's law and who God is. All of that is controlled by Israel and Judah top down. Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia come through. Babylon has a a systematic approach to removing certain people from the land and moving them to a new place. In that process, all of a sudden, what was once this glorious place, God-given life that they had, all of a sudden, it's gone. All of a sudden, they're living in a foreign country with a foreign language, with foreign land, with foreign political structure, with foreign uh, government and, and religion. All of that is foreign to them. All of that is new. So when we think about what does it mean to be in exile, this is what it looks like. The whole world is out of sorts. Nothing looks the way it should. The God you thought was in charge of everything Turns out you're questioning, you're asking those big questions of, is God really in charge? Many of us ask those same questions today, which is why thinking about ourselves in exile is significant. And, and God has an answer, or at least God's people have an answer on behalf of God. That's your, that's your job to decide. And, And so from exile, they live in subtle but subversive ways. And last week we looked back as they moved into restoration when Persia says, yes, you can go back to your land, you can rebuild your temple. And still, they're living in this thankful but sort of, wait a second, this isn't right. I am now, and the the term we've been using for that moment is exile in our own land. Think about that for a minute. Exiles in our own land. And, and what does it mean to live in a subversive way in that context? That's where we left off. So if we're asking the question still, are we exiles in the land? Are we exiles in our own land? Are we exiles in the land? Whatever the question is, uh, we're, we're trying to determine what is the world around us supposed to look like? And we ask that question because we look out and we go, we get grumpy and we say, secular society, uh, obsessed with this, obsessed with this, and then we get all grumpy about sinful world that we live in. And, and we tend, not always, but we tend to shut down in that moment and say, you know what? Uh, we're gonna, we're going to wall ourselves off. We're going to live a moral life, a moral code according to what God has told us, and that's it. But in Jeremiah, we looked at the idea of going out, even in the midst of exile. In uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, we looked at the idea of, of living uh, in those subtle ways to identify not the world's powers, but to identify God's powers and God's structures and, and God's way of life that we're being called to. But here's the deal. The early church talked about living in a world that wasn't theirs. But around 300 CE or AD, everything changed. 
what was the world's powers and the world's structures made this about face, this immediate shift with Constantine moving from the gods of the time to a Christian idea of God and naming Christianity as a state religion began protecting Christians from persecution. But what follows, and I think this is that moment of exile when they're said, you can return to your land. What follows are consequences associated with the state being involved with our religion and our faith. So let's back up. We're doing a lot of backing up this morning. My apologies. We're going to tie three time periods together today, okay? You ready? First, we're going to look at Moses and the shift into monarchy with David and Solomon. Then we're going to look at Jesus and the early church and the shift to Christendom with Constantine and what followed. And then we're going to look at where we are today. Does that sound fair? That seems like a lot. Time is it? We got tons of time. <clears throat> okay, so let's start with Moses. Remember that, that the story of the Exodus begins with God hearing the cry of the people, right? So we have an oppressed people, a marginalized people, a people out of their land, a people that are uh, literally enslaved, and God hears the cries of suffering, and God responds. And for Moses to go and bring this people out of Egypt and out of this land of suffering and pain and oppression is a huge piece of who God is in this view, this perspective. Let me just pause, because the view of who God is here is different than the view of God in 900 to 600 BCE when the monarchy is in place. You need different gods. Careful, Bradley. You need different gods between the place of, uh, of caring for oppressed people and pulling them out of a land of, of slavery and oppression and the God that sustains a monarchy. Just hold that in your head for a second. So, so you've got Moses who, who brings his people out and, uh, and they wander in the desert for, for 40 years and you have a God that is with them but is radically different than the gods of others around them. Let me explain. So the gods around them are, are made with images. You, you design a god, whatever, you design a god, you craft it out of clay or wood or stone or metals, and then you worship the deity. You have it. It's in your hand. It is it is a thing. It is that you can hold it in your hand. But for Moses 
And for the, for, uh, the Hippiru, the, the people uh, that become Israel, for Moses, this isn't a God that can be captured in an image. This is a God of freedom, a God that rescues, a God that reaches in and pulls people out, a God that cares for those on the margins. So, Exodus 33, just as we're sort of surveying things here. Moses says to God, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct. He's saying, Tell me and show me that you're going to go with me, that you're going to be there. And God is saying, yes, I will be there. But then this is what he says. God says, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know, <clears throat> and I know you by name. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim and, and I will be gracious. This is the key. I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, Moses wants a distinction. Moses wants, we are your people. Go with us. Show us that we are your people. God says, I will be with you. But listen here. Listen up. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. There is no containing this God. This is a, this is a God of uprising. This is not a God that sustains monarchies. This is a God that is free. You can't put God in an image because God is bigger than all of that. And when you ask for something specific as, tell me that we are your people and that this is it and that you're here with us, period. God says, yes, I'm here. But listen, I'm going to show mercy to whoever I well please. Expletive removed. That's the God of Moses. When you move to the monarchy, that God doesn't work. Why? You can't maintain order with a free God that goes wherever God pleases. You need a God that you can call on. You, this is a super skeptic. Did I name skeptics over here earlier? This is, this is the skeptic's view of what happens in monarchy. You can't have a God that goes wherever God pleases and serves whoever and lifts up the poor because you need the poor 
to build wealth, you need the poverty to create and amass a sustainable system of affluence. You need a God that will support the monarchy to maintain order. You need a God that can be called upon and demanded presence. Those are very different gods. One that lifts up, one that challenges the system, one that demands a system for the sake of order. A few months ago, Jeff Sessions in the U.S. began announced a policy to separate children from their families at the border of Mexico and the U.S. In his announcement, he quoted Romans 13. Sorry. I pulled it up. It's gone. In his announcement, he quoted Romans 13, which we're going to summarize, saying... Obey the laws of the land because they were put there to maintain order. But Paul's writing in a time period when the someone else is in charge. Sessions is speaking from a place of power and authority and the in charge. Sessions is taking the God of the monarchy and saying, we need to be able to call on this God and say, this is the moment to maintain order. This is the monarchy that we are, that we are holding onto and supporting. And this is the policy to support what we want to do and calls on that God. But the God of the immigrant, the God of the stranger, the God of the the marginalized is the God of Moses that says, I hear the cry of those suffering and those that are oppressed. Two different gods. I had another Exodus passage. Mm. It's gone. It doesn't matter. The theology of Exodus and Moses begins with an oppressed people, continues with a free God, and presses into a community that looks after their neighbor and their brother. In fact, the statement, again, summarizing for the sake of technology. Again, the statement from the God of the Exodus says, when your brother or neighbor falls short, can no longer survive, you step in, welcome them into your home as a stranger, as a sojourner, as a wanderer, as a brother. And you look after them. There is no return for pay. There is no extra ask from him. That is your job. It is a community built around compassion and grace and caring for those underserved. That's not the monarchy, right? That's a different 
that's a different God. Brueggemann asks the question, maybe the monarchy is necessary because that community can't survive. Well, asks the question, can a community survive that is built around compassion and grace rather than control and power and maintaining that. If it's just built around compassion and grace, it becomes a marginalized sect in the land. Always that, that sect challenging the system can never become the system. So fast forward. Jesus challenges the system in a place of power and control and, and a dominated narrative that is not ne- neither Jewish nor Christian, but is Greek and Roman. And when that shifts from challenging the system to Christendom to becoming the system, you have new gods in place just like the shift from Moses to the monarchy. When Solomon comes into place, he needs three things. And he does it absolutely cold-hearted, no concern for anyone but maintaining the monarchy and his family. He comes into power. If you look back at 1 Kings 2, you get the story of what happens. Read that on your own. It's a bloodbath. Because he was the younger brother, he has immediate insecurity of an older brother that's going to take over the throne. Gone. Anyone that supported that older brother? Gone. That continues because he needs ultimate power to maintain a monarchy. So he needs essentially oppressive social policy. Those are political rivals. Those are uh, people on the underside of, of society to support wealth and growth and, and strength of the monarchy. Second, he needs affluence to make everyone happy so that they can maintain this. And lastly, he needs a static religion that he can call on God, that God isn't going to other lands, that God isn't free, that God is put in place in the temple, that the king has immediate, constant access. Fast forward to our current conversation. I don't want to ruffle too many feathers, but... Constant access to God sounds very familiar to me. The free God that goes and blesses whomever, whenever, does not sound very familiar to me. Growing up in a evangelical sort of conservative tradition, access to God was immediate and necessary. It was what maintained the blessing, the affluence, the safety, the security. That was God. 
maintaining the status quo was God. The God of Moses doesn't put up with that. The God of Moses doesn't want to see that. And so now we ask the question, are we in exile or are we in a time of, uh, where we control the system and we need prophetic narratives and stories to combat that system, which is our system. (laughs) The prophetic imagination, uh, Brueggemann's story, is finding a place of criticism. Hold on, I want to use this phrase. Criticized present, a tension between the criticized present and the energizing future. That's the, that's where Moses lived. In a place of criticizing the present and the way things are and who's in charge and how, uh, and how God functions in the world and the energized future of where can we go? What is God calling us to? That tension is lost when we take away criticism of the present by calling on God to endorse social oppressive policies and, uh, and affluent affluence. We lose the option of being criticized. We shut down anyone that criticizes. We ignore anyone that criticizes. And we move beyond without recognition. And then secondly... That energizing future, when we are maintaining the status quo, there is no energized future. It's only more of the same. It's relentless in wanting more of the same, but it's more of the same. So you don't have an energized future. You have a, well, let's make this marginally better for those that are currently, currently have it really good. That's the place of the monarchy and the place of Moses. That's also the place of Jesus and the place of Constantine. A criticized present and an energizing future. And so I ask for us, what does that mean for us to have a criticized present and an energizing future. We have a tendency, because we live in somewhat of the state of the monarchy, in Christendom, we have a tendency to individualize everything. Because we have to. Because it has to be about something future that isn't real right now. We have to, we have to force something that makes sense in the moment of Christendom. Something that makes sense in the moment of monarchy. And we push out all criticism. And we push out all future change because we need to maintain the status quo through the process of Christendom. 
the prophets call on something entirely different. In exile, they called for something entirely different out of a need, out of a requirement, because they are not in charge. They don't have control. And here, the system is a little bit different because for a long, long time, we have been in charge of the system and we needed a God to support the system that we have. So can we call on the criticism in the midst of Christendom, in the midst of this moment right now? And what does that mean? What does that look like? That's your job. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevear and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.